0: John 19, beginning to read in verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So, He knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Father in heaven, enable your people to believe. Amen. There are four Holy Spirit-inspired accounts of the death of Jesus. Of those four, only John witnessed it with his own eyes. Uh, Not John the Baptist, But John, the beloved disciple, who was the brother of James, who was the son of Salome and Zebedee, who was the first cousin of Jesus, John, he was probably very close to the cross. The reason I say that is that he had to be close enough for Jesus to give him verbal instructions to take care of Mary after Christ's departure. And he also needed to be close enough to the cross to see the water and the blood flowing from Christ's riven side. And so he was there. He was close. And I want you to note this evening that he was original. Because all of the items in the seven verses that I just read are unique to John's gospel. Matthew, Mark, and... And Luke in the synoptic or similar gospels don't record any of the information that we have in the passage that I just read. 100% of the content is only available in John. So, why did John deem it necessary and advantageous to include these facts? Why did John write what he wrote? Well, I think we need to first ask and answer the question, why does John write anything that he writes? He tells us why he writes what he wrote, John chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John writes so that the people will believe, and even in the middle of this post-mortem narrative of Jesus hanging on the cross, he tells us that he wrote it so that people would believe. You can see that in verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that, or so that, you may believe. The reason why John wrote is so that we would believe. And so everything in this purpose, in this text, has a purpose, and that purpose is stated. Notice also that John includes himself. Not just that you may believe, but you also. And also implies that there is someone else. And in this particular case, that someone else is John himself. You see, he's not just reporting the truth, but he himself is a believer in the truth. And not just a believer in the accuracy of the facts, but John is a believer in the spiritual truths here to the point where he himself understands that Jesus died in his place. He is a saved believer who loves and worships and serves Jesus who died on that cross. Notice also, as you sit here this evening, looking at me, That this is my purpose as well. I am here for a reason tonight. My reason is so that you will believe. I came here tonight to church to try to convince you to believe. That's why John wrote. That's why I am preaching. I want you to get saved, and I want you to get saved tonight. Now, how does one get saved? Well, it is through the word of God. James chapter 1 verse 18 tells us clearly that the agency whereby one gets saved is the Bible. Of his own will, it's not your choice, it's God's choice. Of his own will, he, God, brought us forth or caused us to be born again. How? By means of the word of truth. A similar passage occurs in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 23 since you have been born again or brought forth, not of perishable seed, but imperishable. How? How did it happen, Peter, through the living and abiding word of God? You get saved through the Bible. Now, John the author writes, and he knew that faith, saving faith, comes about by hearing the word of God. And therefore... He very accurately and logically and thoroughly and unashamedly strives to meet his own goal. Remember, his goal is that you will believe, and he knows that the way that that comes about is by the word of God. Constructing an argument whose force or knockout punch or power is the word of God, the scripture. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we get the impetus for the slogan that I use in every one of my sermons, which is that the gospel is of first importance. It's not just a good motto, but it actually is the truth. It actually is scriptural, and here's where it comes from. Paul says, for I delivered to you of first importance. That's where it comes from, right there, First Corinthians 15, 3. For I delivered you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Now, here's the part that I want you to concentrate on tonight. He didn't just die for our sins, but he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, then he was raised on the third day. But he wasn't just raised on the third day, but there was a prescription that he had to follow. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So John wants you to believe, and so he's not only telling you that Christ died and how Christ died, but he also wants you to know that he died in accordance with the Scriptures. And why is that important? Because it is through the Scriptures that we are born again. Allow me, please, then, at the very front end of this sermon, to steal my own thunder and to give you the bottom line right up front. The most important word in all seven verses here. The most important word in the entire passage with respect to the flow of the argument is the first word in verse 36. And that is the word for. Because that word for connects it with what previously was said. For these things took place that or so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Everything that happened happened for a purpose. What was that purpose? So that the scriptures might be fulfilled. The reason they happened as they did was so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Are you following the argument so far? The scripture is what brings us to life, spiritually, and the events recorded in John chapter 19, verses 31 through 37 occurred, and they were recorded by John in in order to note the fulfillment of Scripture, the Scripture, the only thing that can bring you to life. Even if you are not following my argument tonight, that's okay, because the Scriptures can still bring you to life. And so I will preach to you the Scriptures. It is the Word of God. Jesus has been hanging on a cross now for six hours. He is dead at this point. In verse 30, right before our text, it says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That's it, he's dead at this point. So everything that we're going to examine in 31 through 37 is post-mortem, he is dead. What follows is an account of the dead body of Jesus as it remained on the cross. And the facts recorded by John form a spectacular display of providence, What is providence? Providence is God intentionally working in every detail of human activity, bringing glory to himself and bringing good to his chosen ones. It it, it is God working all things together for good. And please notice the masterful artistic design of God's hand at work in every detail that this eyewitness records. There are many. I will give you only three tonight. The first one is that God works out his providential plan in and through the hypocrisy of the Jewish religious leaders. God's working a plan. What does he use? He uses the hypocrisy of the Jewish religious leaders. Look again, please, in verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away or taken down off of the cross. See, there's a big day approaching, and for Jews, that big day was only hours away, because for the Jew, the day begins at sunset. And so now it's about 3 p.m. And so there isn't too much time left in that day before the big day comes. And what is the big day? The big day is the Sabbath day. And all Sabbath days, according to the fourth commandment, are to be remembered and to be kept holy. But it wasn't just any Sabbath day. It was the Sabbath day of Passover week. And so in verse 31... John tells the reader that that Sabbath was a high day. Every Sabbath is a big day. But for them, the Sabbath in Passover week was the biggest Sabbath. Every Sunday for us is a big Sunday, but Easter Sunday is the biggest of the big Sundays. Likewise, their Passover Sabbath was the biggest one. And so for these Jews—that that is the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, the the chief priests, the scribes and the elders, the ones who had tried Jesus and delivered him over to Pilate in order for them as the face of religion in Jerusalem at that time, in order to honor God and to keep the fourth commandment, to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy, especially on this whole high holy day, you do not want your city littered with the sight of dead bodies hanging on crosses outside the walls of the city, but not just any bodies, but cursed bodies. Because cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, Deuteronomy 21. So, so We really can't honor God if we allow dead bodies to remain in view hung on crosses. They were right, you know. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 21 verses 22 and 23. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, which is what happened to Christ and the two criminals, His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. That is the same day he dies. Why? For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. We never want the land to be defiled, but we especially do not want the land to be defiled on the high holy Sabbath of Passover week. So, in an act of boldness, this is really important, boldness, they go to Pilate and they ask that the legs of all three of the cursed men be broken. Let me break this down for you. Their legs needed to be broken in order to speed up their deaths and to get them down off of the crosses in order to have a happy, holy, God-honoring Sabbath. Now, the reason I say that when they went to Pilate, they went in boldness, you need to remember what happened about six hours earlier. Pilate was angry with them. He had had enough of this guy's. He had been dealing with them all morning long. And what they had done is they had manipulated him by, by making the crowd ask for Barabbas rather than for Jesus. They, 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 they played the, you're not Caesar's friend unless you condemn Jesus to death card. And Pilate felt that he was being used and duped and played, and he was being used and duped and played, and he did not like these guys at all. So when it comes time for Pilate to write the inscription above the head of the cross of Jesus, he wrote... Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, and they came to him and said, ah, there's a technicality there. Please write, he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, I have had enough. I have written what I have written. That's the end of it. I don't want to hear from you guys again. But now, about six hours later, they muster up the courage to go to Pilate. And they say, will you please give orders for the legs of these men to be broken? Why? Because in order to stay alive, you have to breathe. And on a cross, in order to breathe, you have to be able to push up. And you can't push up if your legs are broken. Now, they, they did this for two, two reasons. And, and, and please understand, you have the cross, and then on the Front of the cross, there is a little footstand. What is that little footstand there? Why is it there on the front of the cross? Two reasons. One of the reasons is very practical uh, because of gravity. It's just to keep the weight off of the hands or the wrists. Because if you just put someone up on a piece of wood with a couple of nails, it, it, the nails are going to rip right through it. Gravity is going to take them to the ground. They have to have something to push off of. It's very, very practical. But the main reason why you would have a footrest on the front of the cross is because you wanted to keep them alive as long as possible. You see, the longer they lived, the longer they suffered. And you need to breathe in order to stay alive. And you need to push up in order to breathe. But if your legs are broken, then you can't Push up. And if you can't push up, you can't breathe and you're going to die very quickly. But please understand the whole idea of the cross is not execution. If they just wanted to execute someone, they would cut their head off. And church history says that's what they did to the apostle Paul. They just chopped his head off. They want you dead. You just chop your head off. The cross is not a form of execution primarily. The cross is a form of torture. And it is a message, a public message. That Rome sends out to everybody, which says, We are in charge, you stay in line. If you don't stay in line, would you please look up on this hill at these people who are being tortured there, sometimes for days, and that will happen to you if you don't listen? So there's a reason why Rome was ruling the world at that time. Stay in line. Rome, as I said, sometimes would leave people on crosses for days or even longer, and then after they died, sometimes they would just leave them there then so that the birds could come and eat their flesh. And so what the footrest does to the unwitting person hanging on the cross who instinctively wants to stay alive, it keeps them alive so that they can suffer more. Break a man's legs, and he'll be dead in a few minutes. He can't breathe. So they boldly go to Pilate in accordance with the law of Moses, and they ask for a speedy death for these three cursed men, so as not to defile the land, and so as to honor the Sabbath day. And guess what? Nothing they requested was wrong. Just because they were evil doesn't mean that they were wrong. But what I want you to notice is that they were hypocrites, big hypocrites. It was okay for them to condemn an innocent man to death and to tell lies about him and to manipulate the crowd, to ask for Barabbas, and then to manipulate the governor Pilate into killing Jesus. It's okay to kill an innocent man, but God forbid that we should violate the Sabbath day. They are straining out a gnat, but they are swallowing a camel. Earlier that morning, it was absolutely ridiculous. They had had Jesus in an unjust trial in the temple. Uh, They had brought in false witnesses against him. They condemned Jesus to death And they take him over to the house of Pilate that morning. And in John 18, 28, they would not step foot into the house of Pilate. Why? Because that would defile them to be in the home of a Gentile. But yet it's okay to condemn an innocent man to death. Hypocrites! If you've ever seen the movie The Apostle, uh, Robert Duvall, it's a wild movie, Um I, it has some merit to it, but there is a scene in the movie and Robert Duvall is a pastor, uh, who has killed his youth pastor and is now on the run and he's in another town away from the law and he is courting a married woman and he is taking her out to eat. And as the two of them are sitting there, the waitress puts the food down on the table and the woman starts to eat, and Robert Duvall says, oh, wait right there, we got to pray for this food before we eat. (laughs) But it's not primarily their hypocrisy that I want you to see. It is God's providence using their hypocrisy to accomplish his purposes. You see, and please put your thinking caps on, if they don't request the speedy death of Jesus and the other men, those men and Jesus could hang there for days. But at this point, Jesus is already dead. And Jesus has made a prophecy. And the prophecy that Jesus made is that the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of sinful men. They will crucify him, they'll bury him, and three days later he will come to life. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will rise it up. So in order for Jesus to be a true prophet, he has to be in the tomb for three days. But if he has been dead since Friday, and they don't get him into a tomb until Monday, he is not going to rise from the dead on the third day. Side note, in the Jewish way of thinking, any portion of a day was an entire day. So Friday is all of Friday. Saturday is all of Saturday. Sunday is all of Sunday. And that's why we say Jesus rose on the third day. And without their hypocrisy, Jesus doesn't get buried on Friday. But in order for Jesus to be a true prophet, he's got to get buried on Friday so that he can rise on resurrection Sunday. You see, if Jesus dies on Friday and he doesn't get into the grave on Friday in order for him to rise on the third day, he's not going to be able to do it. The the, the clock is ticking. Somehow, Jesus, as a dead man, needs to get into the grave on the day in which he dies. How does he get into that grave on the day that he dies? Wicked, sinful, arguably the most wicked and sinful man that ever lived unwittingly go to Pilate and say, break their legs so we can get them down from the cross so that we can get them into the grave today lest we defile the Sabbath. They didn't know that they were playing into God's hands, but mathematically, he had to get into that grave on Friday. God in his providence works through the wicked deeds of wicked men to bring about his purposes. This is what Joseph says to his brothers, You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. J.C. Ryle puts it this way. The restless, busy meddling of Caiaphas, who was the high priest, and his companions was actually one of the causes that Christ rose on the third day after death. His Messiahship was thus proven. Pilate was their tool, but they were God's tool, end quote. You see, if they had not sped this up, Jesus might have hung there indefinitely. Roman soldiers, they didn't care how long the bodies were on the grave or on the cross. God uses the wicked Sanhedrin to accomplish his purposes. Point number two God's marvelous providence is seen in the duty, D-U-T-Y, duty of the Roman soldiers. Get the picture. The cross is outside of Jerusalem. Pilate is in Jerusalem. Jesus is on the cross outside the city gate. And so about three o'clock in the afternoon, the Sanhedrin go to Pilate with the request to break the legs of the three men. Now, Pilate is probably himself not going to walk out of Jerusalem to oversee this project. Probably there was a soldier right beside him who said, go to the execution site, break all of their legs. So you can get the bodies down. What would the soldiers do? Well, they would march out of the presence of Pilate. They would go up to Golgotha, And they would say to the other soldiers, we have orders to break the legs of all three men. And they would do it with a mallet or with an iron bar. Now, here's where the providence of God is so marvelously beautiful and wacky. Look again at verses 32 and 33. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other. That is really strange. And of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Why is this odd? Well, you've got three crosses. Don't people usually go in order? You start on one end. Whack. Whack. Their legs are broken. What would you do next? You go to the middle, but this guy smashes the legs of one, skips the man in the middle, goes to the third cross, smack, smack. Bones are shattered. The men's legs are broken. They can't push up. They can't breathe. And then third, he comes to the man in the middle, and he looks at the man in the middle, he is hanging there, motionless. Uh, undoubtedly, the men on either end, uh, you could hear them grunting and groaning and squirming and, and writhing in pain and moving, trying to survive. But the man in the middle is motionless, and his head is drooped. No need to break his legs. Why? He, he's already dead. No signs of life. And, and, and let, let's, let's point out who these guys are. These are Roman soldiers. They are around death all the time. They knew what death looked like. Now, do they have any idea that Jesus' bones can't be broken? I don't think that any of the Roman soldiers had a copy of the law of Moses. They didn't know any of that. All they observed is the man is not moving. If the soldier had gone one, two, three, his bones would have been broken. Or if he had said to himself, here's the kicker, I am not a coroner. I am not paid to be a coroner. I am a man under authority. I follow orders. If Pilate says, break the legs, then break the legs. It's not my job to evaluate he sent me to break the legs that's what I'm going to do for some reason he looks up at the motionless Christ and he unilaterally takes it upon himself to say I'm not going to break his legs just like the Sanhedrin they had no idea that they were fulfilling scripture when I say fulfilling scripture here's what I mean Jesus is the Passover lamb. This was Passover. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover. And in the Passover ceremony, it was explicitly stated that the lamb's legs or bones were not to be broken. Exodus 12, 46, you shall not break any of its bones. That's repeated over in Numbers chapter 9 verse 12, nor break any of its bones according to all the statute for the Passover. They shall keep it. And then in the book of Psalms, we read, he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. A messianic Psalm saying none of the bones of Jesus will be broken. That soldier has no idea that he is fulfilling scripture. I find it very interesting that early in the book of John, John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says what? Behold the Lamb of God. That is the Passover Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If he is the Passover Lamb, the fulfillment of the Passover, his bones cannot be broken and they were not. Number three, and finally, God's marvelous providence is seen in the perceived need of the soldier to verify Christ's death. Let me state that again. God's marvelous providence is seen in the perceived need of the Roman soldier to verify Christ's death. That's in verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water looks like he's dead i mean he's not moving but i want to perform a test an experiment to to verify it well at this point i'm saying all right well, if he's already dead just break his legs like like here's how you could verify it really quickly whack whack bones are broken he doesn't flinch, obviously he's dead, but you haven't done any harm. When I'm dead, you can break my legs. I don't care. You can do anything you want, okay? It it doesn't matter. Just go ahead and break the legs, but he doesn't break the legs. Instead, very mysteriously, he performs a different experiment. What we're going to do is we're going to take a spear. We're going to thrust it up under his rib cage. Amazing, that that spear doesn't break one of his ribs as it's being thrust into him. We're gonna thrust that spear up there. If he doesn't flinch, he's dead. He's dead. This past winter, I don't know why, we have found three dead squirrels in our backyard. It's like, Anna, there's another one. So I'm walking up to it. What does she say? Be careful, be careful. It's not a possum, okay? It's not taking a nap. Well, Anna says, poke it. Just poke it. Make sure it's dead before you pick it up. Who wants to pick up a sleeping squirrel? Let a sweet sleeping squirrel lie. Let's see if he's dead or alive. Now, at this point, I'm going to disappoint you Because you are probably asking yourself the question, what is the significance of the blood and the water that came out of his side? And I'm not going to answer the question. And I'm intentionally not going to answer the question. But I do want to say that this week I read a ton of material on this, and it's extremely interesting. As I have studied this whole passage, I discovered that I was getting caught up in this water and blood thing, and I was being distracted or led down a rabbit trail which was leading me away from the main point of the passage. Man, I read some good stuff. I, I read about the angle of the spear. Was it in his right side or his left side? How long was the spear? How sharp was the spear? How deep did the spear go in? Did the spear pierce his heart? I, I, I learned a ton about a pericardial sac, which apparently I have. I didn't know. I've lived 61 years. I didn't know I had one until I studied this week. I have one, and I think there's like some fluid in there. But it was really interesting to read about. I read a lot of medical opinions as to how and why red blood could coagulate and separate from clear liquid. My only experience with this is when I was at the University of Georgia and I had no money at all, I would go and I would sell my white blood cells, uh, for pizza money, uh, and I, I'm not sure how healthy that was, but, but I don't know that much about the separation. I, 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 blood's all red to me as far as I was concerned. The, the medical rationale for H2O and blood, it, it, it's fascinating. And by the way, there's not just one opinion. There are dozens of opinions. Now, some people, as they read this blood and water thing out of one opening, say that it's a miracle. And some people say, no, it's not really a miracle. This is something which naturally happens, and John records it just to give medical proof that he was dead. And some people say, well, this is extremely symbolic. The most extreme symbolic interpretation I got was just as the first Adam was asleep, And when he was asleep, God took something from his side and made a bride for him. So too, the second Adam, when he was asleep, something was taken from his side, which was able to birth his bride, the church. Fascinating. I don't think that's right at all, but that's the kind of stuff I've been reading. Some people say, oh yes, the water and the blood represents the two ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism. And some people say, medically speaking, that the reason there was water and blood is because he died of a broken heart. Not because of emotions, but his heart literally ruptured. And some people say that he died through the emotions of a broken heart. Well, you tell me. Was it a miracle, or is this just a natural way to prove that he physically died? Is there symbolism here? Does this have to do with what John wrote? And Jackson read earlier tonight in 1st John 5, 6, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Or is that just coincidental? Or is the hymn writer correct who in 1763 wrote the hymn, Rock of Ages? Augustus Toplady wrote the words, let the water and the blood from thy riven side, which flowed be of Sin, the double cure, save from wrath, that is the blood, and make me pure, that is the water. Justification is the blood, sanctification is the water. Here's another one that makes sense. In the Old Testament, all of the ceremonies for cleansing were done by water, and the ceremonies for expiation were done by blood. And so I ask, who's correct in all of this? Well, honestly, I'm not 100% sure. So in part, the reason I'm not answering your question is because I don't know. But there's a more important reason why I'm not answering the question. It's because if we answer that question and get hooked on it, we're going to miss John's point. John's point is that he wants you to believe and he wants you to believe by seeing that the scriptures were fulfilled. And John doesn't tell us if there is symbolism. And if there is symbolism, John doesn't tell us what that symbolism is. So we have to guess. And I say we don't have to guess. And the reason we don't have to guess is because John tells us why he has recorded this. Verse 35 so that you also may believe, and verse 36, to fulfill scripture. So let's just say for the sake of argument, we get it right. We get all this medical stuff right. And by the way, John wasn't a doctor. He hadn't been to med school, so hmm, what did he know? But let's just say for the sake of argument, we get the medical stuff right, and let's say that we discern whether or not the separation of water and blood is miraculous correctly. And let's just say that if there is some sort of symbolism here, we identify the spiritual elements of water and blood being separated, yet exiting at the same time from the same wound. Uh, uh, Let's just say that we get everything right. Even if we get it right, that's not the point. And John tells us that's not the point. And let's just say that we get it all wrong. Let's just say that we don't know whether or not it was miraculous. And let's just say that, that we, we have no idea what's going on medically. And, and let's just say that there is a spiritual significance of water and blood, but we don't get it right. Even if we get it wrong, we can still get the point of the passage correct. So that you also may believe for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, I know I took a long time just now to tell you why I'm not going to tell you something. But it's important that you know why I'm not telling you this. It's because I want to keep you in line with John's rationale. Because what is really indisputably true and clear, here we go, is that they pierced him. And once again, from the perspective of the soldier, he doesn't know what he's doing. Just like the Sanhedrin, just like the other soldier with the broken legs, he doesn't know what he's doing. He just he wants to verify the fact that a man in the middle is indeed dead. On the surface, he appears to be dead. We're gonna make sure There is no reason as we look at this soldier who put the spear into Jesus to assume that he was malicious. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. We have no idea. It really doesn't matter. And John couldn't care less. But what is essential is that he pierced Jesus' side with a spear. And as he did, God's providence once again was at work in this man's desire to verify the death of Christ and the place where this verification comes from is the book of Zechariah Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 Here's the prophecy this has to be fulfilled it has not yet been fulfilled Jesus is now completely passive in that he is dead yet he is still fulfilling prophecy and what is the prophecy Zechariah 12:10 When they look on me whom they have pierced they shall mourn. When they look upon me, whom they have pierced, they shall mourn. Hang on to that word mourn. We will come to that later. But for now, just know that it had to be done. And the soldier, once again, demonstrates God's providence is at work. You can play it out the opposite way. And I think that the opposite way is the normal way. If the Sanhedrin are too shy to go back to Pilate, Jesus is not buried on the day that he is born. Or if when the Sanhedrin go back to Pilate and they ask for the body of Jesus and he says, get out of here. These are my bodies. These bodies are Roman property. I don't want to see you guys again. Or if the soldiers break the legs one, two, and three. Or... If the other soldier decides, you know what, I'm not going to stick a spear in him, we just broke his legs, or for whatever other reason, he decides not to stick the spear in Jesus for any other reason, that prophecy is not fulfilled. And as I said, what I just described probably is what should have happened, and that's how it should have played out. But it didn't play out that way. It played out the exact opposite way in all three scenarios. And John, in verse 35, bends over backwards to say, I saw it with my own eyes. It's true. I was an eyewitness. I was up close. I'm 100% sure of it. And I'm telling you this so that you, just like me, will believe. Stay with me. I'm, I'm reaching the conclusion here. The fact that Jesus died and that John witnessed it is not enough. That in and of itself is not good enough. You see, if John was witnessing the death of Jesus, as Jesus was hanging on the cross, someone from the crowd had come up with a sword and they had beheaded him like they beheaded John the Baptist. And John wrote, I was there. I was up close. I'm telling you the truth. I witnessed it. He died. He died. He was decapitated. The only thing John would be proving is that Jesus is not the Christ and that Jesus is a false prophet and that Jesus is a liar. Jesus had to die how he died, and every detail had to be precisely worked out, including his bones being intact and his side being pierced. has to be three days in the grave as well. And an accurate rendering of Christ's post-mortem body is of no value unless it lines up with Scripture. You see, Christ died according to the Scriptures. Now, I've only scratched the surface of this text. As I close tonight, I want to share four appropriate responses. Here's response number one. Read the Bible and look for Christ. Read the Bible because it is fascinating. It's living and it's true. And the development of unfolding prophecies and types and shadows and ceremonies and commandments in the Old Testament along with the sacrifices and the festivals as they present themselves and unfold in the New Testament find all of their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. The whole Bible is about Jesus. So read the Bible and look for Christ. The story of the Passover in Egypt. Man, isn't that a great story? I mean, you've read Genesis. Now you're working your way into Exodus, and these people are slaves. They're slaves for 400 years, and, and they've got these plagues, and, and they're not going to be released. And all of a sudden, there's this 10th plague, and God tells Moses to tell the people to sacrifice the Passover lamb and to put the blood above the doorpost. And the Egyptians don't do it. And all the firstborn of the Egyptians die. And it is because of that, that they are released. And, and God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And as a result of that, they are released and they get to go out into the desert and they go through the Red Sea and they come to Mount Sinai. And then they go into the, they go into the promised land of Canaan and they become a great nation. And isn't it a great story? I'm not being sarcastic. It is really a great story. The Passover is really a great story. But the point of the Passover is not that a group of ancient Near Eastern people who were slaves got to go free. The point of the Passover is that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, would come And not one of his bones would be broken and he would shed his blood. And when God sees his blood, he will pass over us and we will be eternally saved and we will not be damned. That is the great picture of the Passover lamb. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm not being critical tonight. I'm not being proud. I'm not being arrogant. I'm just stating a fact. This is Passover. And tonight, there are countless people celebrating the Passover. I'm glad that their families are getting together. I'm not in any way belittling that. But how sad it is that they are remembering the Passover, but they don't know what it means. It's pointing to Jesus Read the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, and look for Christ. Because not only did he die, here we go, he died according to the Scriptures. Point number two. This is your biggest point of application tonight. And that is that this passage calls for mourning. It calls for you to mourn. Again, I would ask that you would turn... Please, back to the book of Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, I want to read the whole verse. This is the piercing verse. The piercing calls for a response. Here's the prophecy. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and please for mercy or supplication, uh, so that they may look on me on whom they have pierced. And what are they gonna do after they look upon the one that they have pierced? Here we go. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Some families have a lot of kids. Some families only have one kid. That one kid dies, the mourning is intensified. Firstborn dies, that mourning is intensified. The prophecy is they're gonna look at the one that they have run through and they are going to mourn. Well, the Jews were standing outside of Jerusalem at that time. They see Jesus crucified and it does not touch them in any way emotionally. Those of you who are unsaved, you have not yet been touched. You're looking at Jesus be crucified. I'm describing it as accurately as I can. I'm telling you, Christ died for our sins. It means nothing to you. These Jews are looking at Jesus. It means nothing to them. They are not mourning at all, but something happens. The Holy Spirit comes to play upon their hearts. On the day of Pentecost... In Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching the crucifixion and the resurrection. And in Acts chapter 2, Peter says this in verses 23 and 24. I'll read 22 as well. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man tested to you by God. Uh, with many mighty works and wonderful signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. In other words, it is historically verifiable. Here's what happened to this man, Jesus Christ. God's sent one. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, the overarching providence of this happening was in the mind of God, but you had a role in it. Here we go. Hang on to these words. Peter says to these people, weeks after Jesus has been crucified, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You say, wait a minute, the Jews never crucified anybody. They did crucify. They got the Romans to do it, and so they themselves are guilty of it. If I take a gun and I shoot you, I can't go into the court of law and say, I'm sorry, judge, I didn't kill anybody. The gun killed him. The Jews manipulated the Romans who killed Christ. And so Peter says, you crucified Jesus. Wow. Verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for it to be, for him to be held by it. He's not still dead. He is now alive. What do they do in response to this message? This is you who have heard the gospel your entire life that Jesus died for our sins and that he was raised again. You're looking at the one who is pierced and you've got no response at all. But when the Holy Spirit comes, as the Holy Spirit was upon Peter at that time, and the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is in his preaching, they now have a different response. And in verse 37 of Acts 2, they say this, and when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. In other words, they mourned. They said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? oh no, what have we done? What now shall we do? In other words, they were mourning as Zechariah said they would mourning. You say, that's great. Those people should be mourning because they were horrible people who did horrible things. And that's true. They were horrible people who did horrible things. But you also need to know that they were not the only horrible people who did horrible things. Because in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6, we read this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and we wanted nothing to do with him. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. You were not the one that was holding that spear that was thrust up into him, but you are every bit as guilty as the one that did it. He was pierced for your sins. And he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. You put those wounds on him through your sin, And he healed you through those wounds. Verse six, we're all like sheep. We've gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. We've said to Jesus, we want nothing to do with you. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. You didn't go and ask Pilate to kill him. You didn't pound his hands into the cross. You didn't flog him. You didn't mock him when he was thirsty. You didn't literally pierce him. You did something worse because you've heard the gospel that God loves you and that Jesus died in your place and that he rose again and that he offers you eternal life time after time after time, and you have rejected it and you have run away from him You are the one that pierced him. And the only proper response is to mourn. The facts, facts aren't gonna make you mourn. You've known the facts for a long time. You might know the facts better than me. It's when you see that he did that for you and that you put him there. Several years ago, at youth camp, we were playing a game. I won't go into the specifics of the game, but, but <clears throat> one of the things that happens in the game is that if a person catches the ball, their team will, will get a point. And so I, and we're playing with multiple balls and I, I have a ball in my hand and I see that a ball is coming and it's about to be caught by one of my opponents. And so I take the ball and I try to hit the ball that's in the air. I missed the ball and I have a really good arm. And at point blank range, I hit one of the campers in the face. He goes to the ground. He's writhing in pain. He's just been hit full force with a football that I have thrown into his face and he has no defense. What am I thinking immediately? It was me. I did that. The reason why he is in pain right now is because I have inflicted this upon him. Until you see that you put Jesus on that cross, you will not mourn. You will not mourn. But oh, when you see the one that was pierced and you put him there, you will mourn. And that mourning will cause you to repent. And that morning will cause you to be as the Jews on the day of Pentecost were, and you will cry out and say, sirs, what must we do? You'll hear the words, repent, repent, repent and be baptized. So you can't be saved unless you're first lost, and you can't be lost until the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to show you that you are guilty. Two more points of observation. Number three, I love this one. Worship our glorious Christ because of the tremendous trust that he placed in the Father. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Jesus is said, and 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 it's amazing what Peter writes about, uh, about Christ here. First Peter chapter two, it says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, here's what he did. He didn't threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. Worship Jesus because of the wonderful faith that he had in God. You wanna talk about being passive? You're really passive if you are nailed to a cross. You you have no mobility, you have no influence whatsoever. You wanna talk about ultimately being passive? How about being dead? He cried, it is finished, he yielded his spirit, he died, and now as a dead man, here's what has to happen to him. He's gotta get in the tomb that day, he's gotta make sure his legs don't get broken, and he needs to somehow get a spear thrust in his side. And he has absolutely no control over the situation at all. We love to be in control. Jesus is completely out of control, even though he is God, and he's trusting his heavenly Father that he's gonna get in that grave, wrapped in a 100 pounds of spices, with a rock in front of that tomb, with, with Pilate's seal on that, He's trusting God, that's gonna happen that day. He's trusting God that not one of his bones are gonna be broken, and he is trusting God that a spear is going to be thrust in his side. If we are to be like Jesus, we must trust God. And then, sorry it took me so long to get here, but but here's where we are. <clears throat> The reason why John wrote the book, the reason why John wrote the passage, the reason why I came to the church tonight, the reason why I've been speaking tonight, is this one thing. Here's your application, believe, believe. Tonight is the night for you to be saved. Tonight is the night for you to recognize that God is holy, and that he demands perfection. Tonight is the night for you to feel the weight of your offense against him, that you have sinned and it's not okay. And that you are sinned and you've sinned and you are guilty and that is not okay. And you have sinned and you're going to be punished for it. And that's really not okay. I'm telling you tonight, you need to believe and be worried. You need to believe and be frantic. You need to believe tonight and look for a remedy. And you need to believe tonight that that remedy is found upon the man who was hanging in the middle, whose legs were not broken, the man who was pierced, the man whom you pierced through your sins. You need to believe that he was taken down off of that cross, having paid for every one of your sins. And you need to believe that he was in that tomb Friday night, all day Saturday, and early Sunday morning, but he came out of that tomb, and you need to believe that right now, right now, right this minute, now, believe. Call on him now to save you. Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me. I call out to you. Have mercy upon me, O son of David. You call upon him now, and you believe, and here is the great promise. Promise is that God so loved the world John 3, 16, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, like you have to do right now, right now you have to believe, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Believe. Father in heaven, enable your people to believe. Amen.